If you got your Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're closing out with verses 6 through 13, the first uh, letter of Peter. Um, you can turn there in your Bible if you've got it, or in the Version Bible app. Um, I'm in the CSB, so you can follow along word for word if you would like to, um, or it'll be on the screen or the outline we provided in the program for you. 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll also have some other supporting verses. It's in the outline. It'll be on the screen as well um, that we'll get to actually before we get to 1 Peter. Um, but if there's anything I want you to really uh, focus in on today that I am here to tell you, the one thing, not the one thing, but one of the big things that is deteriorating humanity, I'm sure you could come up with a list of things that you think is just wearing away at humanity, but I'm here to tell you today it's the selfie. The millennials um, have been branded the selfie generation. And the reason why is because essentially they've grown up with smartphones. Um, I taught, uh, we taught Gavin how to spell his name on the computer by putting his name uh, on, in, you know, as his password, and he had to type in his name to log in. So he's grown up with a computer. Um, I'm kind of, they, they say us that were born like in the 80s, we're tweeners because we had like uh, rotary phones to touchstone phones to cell phones to, you know, uh, from cassettes to CDs to MP3. So we've, we've kind of been a, a gap uh, you know, bridge um, kind of generation. But the millennials, they've grown up with smartphones. They've grown up uh, with social media. Um, Was it Generation Z now is the same. Uh, and I'm not here to pick on millennials. I'm just going to use them as an example because of an article um, that uh, I found this week as I was preparing this. Um, but in reality, I'm not talking about your gym and bathroom and duck lip photos um, that you like to post on social media. Um, that, <laughs> thank you, Brian. That's a good example. Um, that's not the selfie I am talking about, um, but it may be a part of, he's continuing on. He likes that. So with his duck lips there. So, uh, but it could be connected <laughs> to what I'm going to share with you today. What I'm talking about is the incessant focus on self the incessant focus on me. In fact, not too long ago on social media, I wrote simply this, self is the deadliest of all addictions. Um, I've got to have my way, my truth. My, it's about my comfort, my feelings, my pleasure, my time, my money. It's about me. It's about what I feel is most important with my schedule, what I feel is most important with my money, what I feel is uh, most beneficial to me, what I feel is comfortable and convenient to me, you name it. In 2013, um, Gene Twinge wrote this article, The Me, Me, Me Generation in Times. It says this, the incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for the generation that's now 65 or older, according to the National Institute of Health. 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than in 1982. Millennials got so many participation trophies growing up that a recent study showed that 40% believe they should be promoted every two years regardless of performance. They are fame-obsessed. Three times as many middle school girls want to grow up to be a personal assistant to a famous person as want to be a senator, according to a 2007 survey. 
Four times as many would pick the assistant job over CEO of a major corporation. They're so convinced of their own greatness that the National Study of Youth and Religion found the guiding morality of 60% of millennials in any situation is that they'll just be able to feel what's right. Their development is stunted. More people ages 18 to 29 live with their parents than with a spouse, according to the 2012 Clark University poll of emerging adults. And, sorry millennials, they're lazy. That may not be all of you. This is the statistics in 2013. In 1992, the, no the nonprofit Families and Work Institute reported that 80% of people under 23 wanted to one day have a job with greater responsibilities. Ten years later, only 60% did. Now, once again, this was nine years ago when this was reported. And so um, one statement out of this whole article, if it best describes not only um, this article, but really the self-centered worldview of the me generation, it would be this. 60% say their guiding morality is they'll just be able to feel what's right. Once again, it goes back to my truth, my feelings. It's about me. Now, I'm not picking on just the millennial generation, but what this is saying is those that they polled is that when someone gets angry, when someone gets betrayed, when someone is upset, what will determine what is right for them in their response and the direction that they take in their life when those emotions and those feelings um, rise up is their feelings. And so instead of having some firm foundation of truth to guide them even when their feelings are off or elevated, it's based on their feelings. So my angry feelings are going to determine what's right. My upset feelings, not getting my way, being betrayed, or on the other end, when I'm depressed or when I'm sick or when um, I'm tempted those feelings are what's going to determine what's right or even what's wrong in that situation. If I feel that it's wrong to respond in a certain way, maybe the right way, then I'm going to make my decision on the direction of my life based on those feelings. And so, once again, this mindset is not just limited to the millennials. That's just the article that I found as I was doing research Let's look back to the 60s and the 70s. We had the, the free love sex revolution. In the 80s and the 90s, we had your way right away. What you want is what you get. It's the same mentality. It might have uh, fleshed itself out in different ways, but every generation has been plagued by this me ide ideology, this me mindset, this what I want, I should get. If I don't get what I want, then I'm going to allow my feelings to dictate the direction of my life and my response. We even see this recorded in Isaiah um, with Lucifer. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 14. This is what Lucifer said, shining morning star. That's referring to Lucifer. How you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most 
high. Lucifer was full of pride. Pride is what led to Lucifer's fall. Why? Because it was all about Lucifer. In Lucifer's mind, everything revolved around him. He's going to set his throne above the stars. He's going to be like the most high God. He, it's all about him. It's all about what he wanted. It's all about what he wasn't getting. And so he determined for himself, he would rise up, he would have a mutiny, and he was going to be like God. And that pride is what led him to where he fell and where he was kicked out of heaven. But then in Genesis, we see that the serpent used this same mindset and the same ideology, this same um, really um, temptation when he asked Eve if God had truly told them that they could not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And she replied to him, and I'm not going to read through all the scripture, that no, it was just one tree and that if we eat of this tree, we we will surely die. And so here is the serpent's response to her in this conversation in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He says, no, you will certainly not die. And so he's lying to her. He's using deception here. He's telling her the opposite of what God had already established as truth. And so, no, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Now, what was Satan's pride and what did his pride lead him to say? That I'm going to be like the Most High. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to set my throne above the heavens. I'm going to be like him. And then he comes along through the serpent and he tempts Eve and he lies to Eve and he says, look, if you'll just disobey God, if you'll just go based on your feelings and you'll just listen to me, your eyes will be open. You'll know right from wrong and you will be like God. And what he tells her here is that that you then can decide because you're going to be like God. You're going to know what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. And then you can decide that for yourself. That's what he's telling her because you're going to be like God. If you're like God, you get to determine that. And so from the very beginning of time, from from even the beginning of creation where Lucifer fell, pride, the the me generation, the me mentality, the the, the pridefulness and the, 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 the world revolves around me attitude has been infecting humankind and humanity since then. From Adam and Eve and and all through the generations. You can look through the scriptures. You can look through our history as a people. And so pride and the selfie attitude is that very mentality that has destroyed mankind. And so we can point out the, the different ways that that's fleshed out with each generation, but it has infected all of us. And so it's no surprise that as Peter concludes this part of his letter, and as he is encouraging Christians, as he closes out 1 Peter, this is his instructions. This is what he writes to this group of Christians who have been persecuted, who they've gone through very difficult circumstances, but also the transferable truth that can apply to us today because we're a part of the same mentality. We face the same temptations because we know that the me attitude, the selfie attitude and mindset has infected every generation. And so this is just as applicable to us as it was for them. And this is what he said in chapter five, verses six and seven. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time casting all your cares on him because he cares about 
you. You can write this down. Christians should have a correct view of their position with God. Christians should have a correct view of their position with God. Peter said, humble yourselves. Be humble. Don't give in to pride. Don't give in to the me attitude and the selfie mindset. Humble yourselves. Resist pride. In fact, humility means a modest or low view of one's own importance. As we've said before, being humble, um, humility is not thinking less about yourself, your value and your worth, but it's thinking about yourself less. It's thinking less about what you deserve and what you, uh, what's expected from you and uh, what you would be demanding or what you're feeling. It's putting that aside. It's lowering that view. It, it means that you have a proper understanding of where you get your worth from, which is God, but also what your worth is. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It doesn't mean that you're less important. It doesn't mean that you have less worth or less value than anyone else. It just means you don't elevate that above everything else or everyone else. You understand that your worth is the same worth as any other human uh, being that you share life with because you're all created by God. God gives you life. God gives you value. God gives you worth. And so humility is, I'm not going to elevate myself. I'm not going to demand more for myself than I would for anyone else because I have no greater value or any greater worth. God gives me my value. God gives me my worth. And in this world of um, us getting to decide so many things for ourselves, and we're so confused about our identity in this generation, we don't have to be confused about those things because we understand who gives us our identity. It doesn't come from ourselves, and it doesn't come from my, my feelings and my emotions, but it comes from the truth of understanding that God created me, God made me who I am, He doesn't make mistakes, and He loves me just as I am. He, he has given me, given me value and worth. It doesn't matter what anybody else says or what anybody else feels about me. God loves me. He cares about me. And he gives me my identity. He gives me my worth. And so we have a proper understanding that that's where I get my worth. Not from a man, not from a woman, not from parents, not from spouses. They can encourage you. They can build you up. But that's not where you get your worth. That's not where you get your value. And in the same way, we as people have to understand that everyone that we share life with doesn't get their value and their worth from us either. So we have to understand that they are loved and valued by God just as we are. And so it means that we actively fight against the desire to have things our way, to be like God. Because from Lucifer to Adam and Eve, that has been the temptation. That has been the myth that has driven so many people to despair. Peter tells us how to humble ourselves. He says, under the mighty hand of God. Here's a newsflash for some of us. God is God. We are not. God is God. You are not. God is God. I am not. The Bible says his ways are higher than my ways, our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I'm glad I'm not God. I'm glad that there are things even about God that I don't understand, but God is, um, he is in control. Peter tells the Christians here to humble themselves under his mighty hand or under his rule, um, to have faith in his sovereignty. Because if God is mighty, if he is truly the true and living God, the one who has created all things, then he is sovereign. He is fully in control of all of our circumstances, all of the things that we face. 
All of the situations in life that we like or we dislike, the things that are favorable to us and the things that are unfavorable, the things that are profitable to us and the things that might leave us impoverished in this world and in this life, the the things that we would choose for ourselves and the things we wouldn't choose for ourselves, in good health and in bad health, in sickness and in death, all those things that we vow to our spouse, it's true for us as well that God is sovereign and he's fully in control of those things. Because that's where our pride tends to creep up. It's when life doesn't go our way. It's when we don't get our way. It's when we then want to be like God, because I want to determine for myself, based on my feelings and my emotions, the me mindset, the selfie attitude. This is how I want it. This is what's going to make me comfortable. This is what's going to be convenient to me. This is what's going to feel good. This is what's going to make me happy. Whatever it might be, This is what's going to give me security. And so when we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, under his sovereign rule, then what we can really rectify within ourselves where we can find contentment is that God is in control and it's going to be okay. That he, 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 he loves us. We get our value from him. We get our worth from him. That, that he has created us, not just to punish us and not just to like, you know, do bad things to us, but yet we can trust him because the scripture tells us this, as we trust God and that he is in control, that he's mighty, he's good, that he will exalt you at the proper time. He says, be humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in his time. In the proper time. Then Peter tells them, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. These Christians have been suffering greatly. That they've been slandered, beaten, they've been crucified, burned alive, they've been torn apart by wild animals. And here Peter comes in as he concludes this first letter and he tells them to um, trust in God's sovereignty, to trust that he's in control and cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares about you. Peter's warning them not to give in to that pride. He's warning us not to give in to that pride. He's warning them to to humble themselves, to not demand uh, their rights or to even demand their own justice, because in this society, they're not going to get their own justice. If they're looking for justice in this world, it wasn't going to come for them. And so they would only be left in despair but knowing that God is sovereign, God is in control, and in the proper time, he would exalt them. Even if it's in eternity, he's going to exalt them. He's going to take care of them. He's going to give them all that they need. That's why we see in Philippians with, uh, with Paul, as he says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. He's in prison. He's being starved. He's being beaten. And he's saying, I can endure this. I, I can be content even in this situation. Why? Because it's Christ who strengthens me. It's Christ who exalts me. And so because God loves us, we can cast our cares on him. We don't have to take control of our life. We don't have to try to rule and reign for ourselves. We don't have to demand our rights. We don't have to demand our own way. And I just wonder, do you trust God like that? Do you truly trust God that when life has fallen apart, when when the, 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 the world is against you, when it just feels like everything's crumbling in your hands, you have no control, that that you can trust God in that way, that you can cast all your cares on him. 
That, that, that you don't have to try to demand your own way, that you don't have to be in control, that you don't have to be like God, but you can trust that God is mighty, that he is sovereign. In fact, um, this kind of trust in a world that struggles with anxiety and depression and those things, all of those things are on the rise. The, uh, it's, it's gone off the charts even with COVID and 2020 and all of those different things. And, and so uh, we, we are a generation that deals with anxiety. Why? Because anxiety is worry. And what is worry? Worry is I'm out of control and I want to be in control and I want the answers and I want the solutions and I'm not content because I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand my feelings, but I want to get my feelings under control, but I don't know how. And, and so I'm anxious. I'm worried. And so this is our, this is what marks our generation, not just the millennials, not just Gen X, but those who are alive today, increasingly so. You know how you can help reduce your anxiety, how you can sleep better? You cast your cares on him. In fact, at a pastor's roundtable this week, we had a guy um, come in and share with a group of pastors that one of the things he has found, and this might be an action step for you, that, that one of the things that has helped him is that every night before he goes to sleep, before he goes to bed, he keeps a journal by his bed, and he said he has stacks of them now. And he will write out his fears. He will write out his feelings, not just to put them on paper, but to God, to, to share, to get it off his mind, to get it off his heart, and to give it to God. This is a physical act. Sure, we can verbally do it, but he takes a journal and he writes it out, and then he was being humorous with it because he said one day he's going to die and somebody's going to read his thoughts and read his true feelings and anxiousness and be like, wow, yeah, he, he had some issues. The truth is we all do. We, we, but, and, and so maybe that's something you can try. Something to just be intentional about. God, I'm giving you this care. God, this is my worry. This is my fear. This is what I'm dealing with. This is my pain, and so I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to turn it over to you. And he shares for himself that just his ability to sleep through the night, his ability to not be waking up with his heart racing because he didn't get this done, or he, he doesn't know how he's going to resolve this or whatever, has been reduced because he has intentionally given it to God. Verse 8 goes on to say, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Christians will thrive or die on our ability to be on guard and resist the devil through faith. Christians will thrive or die on our ability to be on guard and resist the devil through faith. It's time for us to wake up and be alert. It's time for us to put away the things that rob us of being able to um, have our natural senses to, to be alert. It, it's time we put away those things that distract us from God's word, from what is true. Those things that um, lead us towards our feelings and our emotions rather than what God tells us through his words. Um, the things that affect how we think and feel. It could be media, it could be music, literature, negative friends, substances, all those things that we put in our mind, all those things that we listen to, all those things that we allow to shape us. We need to be awake, we need to be alert, we need to be sober-minded that these things will distract us, these things will numb our senses, these things will allow us to not be sober-minded, to not be alert. It, it, it's time for us to wake up to these things. 
We need to be sober-minded because we do have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, the devil, who the Bible says um, is uh, roaring, like a roaring lion. He is um, uh, prowling around. He's hungry. He's looking for a meal. He is dangerous. He is vicious. And he's looking for those who are distracted. He's looking for those who are um, wrapped up in their emotions. He's looking for those who are dissatisfied and aren't happy so that he can come along and he can, just like Eve, he can feed a seed of doubt. He can feed the myth. He, he can lead them astray. Why? Because they're wrapped up in their emotions. They're wrapped up in their dissatisfaction. It, it could happen in your marriage. It could happen because you start um, maybe uh, having a little bit of tension in your marriage and you start thinking he doesn't this or she doesn't this or this person does it better. And all of a sudden your enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion starts telling you, hey, you could find better. Hey, he treats you better. She treats you better. And then all of a sudden, you're distracted because of your emotions. You're distracted because of feelings. And before you know it, you're making decisions you would have never made, even as a follower of Jesus. Why? Because there's a, a, a true enemy prowling around looking for the, the prey, the one who's isolated, the one who's not paying attention. It could be in your finances. Things are tight. Things are tough. You're paying almost $5 a gallon. Things are getting more and more difficult. You can't find baby formula. You can't, all of these different challenges, all of these different things that are coming on us, causing us to be anxious, causing us to be worried. And then suddenly you're not feeling so great. Suddenly it's difficult. It's causing pressure at home. It's causing pressure with family. It's causing pressure at work. And suddenly you start thinking about, well, I got, I got to pay the bills I gotta, I gotta put gas in the tank to get back and forth to work. It's, it's for a good reason. And you have an enemy who'll lead you into things and into decisions, theft, and uh, out of uh, not necessarily even greed. See, see, that's where we say, well, I'm not greedy. I'm just taking care of my family. Fudging numbers, being dishonest on sales numbers or whatever that might be. Why? Because it's for a good cause. It's for a good reason. And then before you know it, you fall. Before you know it, you're making decisions that you would have never made. But because you allowed yourself to be distracted and you're not sober-minded and you're not alert and you're listening to the feelings, before you know it, you're making decisions that's going to affect you. It's going to affect your life. It's going to affect your family. And so the Bible tells us we need to not only be humble and understand that where we get our identity and where we get our worth, and we need to understand that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the, the, the situations that we're facing now, whether it be health situations, extreme prices on gas, shortages of formula, um, shortages of supplies that we need for our families. He's sovereign over that. He, he's in control of it. And what the scripture is telling us is that we can trust that he is mighty and we can take those cares that we have and we can cast them on him. And we can tell him just how worried we are that we might not be able to feed our baby. We, we're worried that we might not be able to take care of our family. We're worried so that we can get those things off of our mind. We can focus on the truth so that when the, roar, the, the, the prowling, roaring lion 
Our enemy comes to try to deceive us. We're not wrapped up in emotions. We're not wrapped up in ourselves. We're not wrapped up in what we want and what will give us security. And we can stand firm and we can resist him. And we can resist him, as the scripture says, with the truth. And that's what Peter tells us. How how did Peter tell us to to resist him? Resist him, verse 9, firm in the faith. Not just with faith, but the faith. The very faith that we trust in, the very faith that we believe in. Sometimes we might not feel like we've got faith. We, we don't feel like we can do it, but we got to keep going back to the faith, to, to the truth of God's word and hold firm to it. And so he says, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. We resist the devil firm in the faith. We, we lower our view of self. We, we stop trying to be the center of our world or the world and allow God to be. We we trust that God is mighty. He cares about us and he'll care for us. This is a great time for like a cheesy, um, even illustration because I see some of y'all fanning. God's sovereign over the air conditioner. I thought they were going to have the new thermostat. You can see it hanging off the wall. We're ghetto (laughs) and it doesn't even work fully. It's a special thermostat that knows how many people are in here and then it like does what it does. We have the dummy thermostat. God's sovereign over it. And we're so tempted, especially in the church world. Man, that church is more entertaining. That church is more fun. They've got this. And I'm not against churches. You know, we pray for churches. We celebrate churches. But that's our mindset. The consumerism, the entertainment, and the things like that. And so it can be very tempting to be like, man, this this is miserable. This is two weeks in a row. And I'm just going to go find a church that has working air conditioning. That's fine, cool. We, we love them too, and we'll still love you. But, but that's our mentality. That's our mindset. Because as the pastor, I'm worried about it. I'm like, God, you're in control. This is your church. You knew they didn't order it. There's nothing I can do about it. So I'm going to trust you with it. I'm going to use it as an illustration in the middle of my sermon that I didn't plan. <laughs> and so when we face suffering and difficulties, we can know we're not alone, he says. There's other Christians who are facing the, th- the same struggles. In this day, there were other Christians who were suffering in the same way. Other Christians face the same temptations you do. You're not alone. That's why he gives you a Christian family, a Christian community to walk through these difficulties, to walk through the suffering together. As the body of Christ, we must continue to encourage and build one another up to spur one another to keep moving, to keep going on. That's why people like work out together. Why? Because they cheer each other on. They build each other up. They tell them you can do it, not to quit, to give it one more try. In the same way, we're called to spur one another on to do good works, to keep moving, to keep going, to not listen to the lies to not make that decision that's going to have um, eternal or uh, earthly consequences, to keep our eyes on the truth of God's word. We're in this together, and that's why we are firm believers in community groups. You you learn better in circles than in rows. You're going to get some stuff here, but where the faith is really lived out is in community. It's in community groups. It's where you're doing life with one another, It's where when you're sick, you've got a group of people who know you and and help provide meals for you, show up at the hospital for you. 
I'm not against making hospital visits, but I love it when I get to the hospital. I tell you this all the time. And like, I'm just one of like 15 people in the room and I'm usually getting kicked out because I don't know how to act in serious places like hospitals. I'm going to make, I'm going to have fun in the hospital. It's weird. It's awkward. People have got tubes. They're half dressed. I mean, it's just awkward. But you know what's most important is that the church isn't built around a pastor or an elder, as we talked about last week. We're called to be shepherds. We're called to be servants. But it's built on the people. It's built on you. And so you're missing out on Christianity if you're not in a community group. You're missing out on what is intended for us if you're not doing life with one another. There are times that people are asked, well, what about this? Or what about this function of the church? We run most of those things. Most of the things we do, like meals for people who are sick and all through community groups. Why? Because it, you're, you're, you're known in that group. You're cared for in that group. You're not just a stranger to a pastor that you've never met. But you know, there's people who know you. They know your struggle. They're praying for you. They're walking through life with you. And to be honest, if every one of you were like, you know what, I'm not in a group and I need to be in a group, we wouldn't even be prepared because we need more facilitators and host homes. But this, it's not a program of the church. You know, many of you may have grown up in church and you had Sunday school and you had this program, you had that program. Community is not a program of the church. It is a core essential of the Christian faith. We see it in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. They met in homes. They did life together. They did Lord's Supper together. They sold their possessions when someone had a need. And they said, you know what? I don't need this anymore. Or, or you know what? This person is more important than this material thing. It's not about me. The world doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around entertainment. And so I can let go of this so I can meet the basic need of someone that I do life with. That's what we see in New Testament. That's New Testament Christianity. It's not just coming together, having a program, having a service, going home, and then we don't do life with one another anymore. They were meeting daily with one another. They had relationships with one another. And you know what's going to help with your anxiety? You know what's going to help you stand firm in the faith when the um, prowling, roaring lion comes to seek after you, to devour you, to destroy you? You know what's going to help you stay focused rather than distracted on yourself and your feelings and the things of the world? You know what's going to encourage you to hold firm to your identity in Christ? Other believers, community, people who love you and know you, And sometimes that takes time. It doesn't just happen. You don't show up at someone's house and be like, man, they know you. It takes time. Sometimes it takes difficulty. It takes suffering. It takes weeping with one another. It takes walking through sickness with one another. It goes through walking with someone through a divorce, through the loss of a child, through all of those things that we, we deal with in life. It takes that struggle. And so that's why he tells us, no, there's others who are suffering with you. There's others going through this same suffering. See, because when we get isolated, go watch the nature shows with the lion. What happens when, when the, the, the young uh, antelope gets isolated? The young bull gets isolated. The lion attacks. The lion catches it. The lion eats. It's no different in the Christian faith. It's no different in the church. If you're isolated and you don't have community, who's going to encourage you? Who are you going to turn to when when you need prayer? Who are you going to turn to when the anxiety is kicked up 
top notch. Who, who are you going to turn to when you're struggling with your worth? Who are you going to turn to when you're tempted to make a foolish decision? When you're isolated, you're in danger. When you're, in isol- when you're isolated, it's unhealthy. You need community. And then he closes with this in verse 10 to 13. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, because for him to call us to his eternal glory in Christ, it required him to be a God of grace. He himself will restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings as does Mark, my son. You can write this final thing down and we're going to close. God does not abandon his people. He benefits them. He does not abandon his people. He benefits them. We know from other scriptures that suffering produces endurance and endurance completes us in Christ. There is purpose in your pain, but you do not have to walk through life with that pain alone. You do not have to be isolated. He has given you community. He has given you a family to walk with you through it. He's given you the Holy Spirit to indwell you. He is with you always. Yes, you will suffer just a little bit, but in the end, it says God will restore you, establish you, strengthen you, and support you. And sometimes he uses your current suffering to do it. But Paul leaves us as we close this out with one final instruction. Let us not get tired or grow weary of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing, don't make it about yourself. Don't make the world revolve around you. Stand firm in the faith. Rely on the, the, the community. But most importantly, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves knowing that God is sovereign. He is in control. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He loves you. And after suffering just a little bit, after you endure just a little bit, the scripture says he will establish you. He will um, strengthen you. He will complete you. He will restore you. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired in doing what is right. Don't give up because your good reward is coming. God promised it. Stand firm, be sober-minded, be alert. And the way you resist the devil is to stand firm in the faith. And even when you feel you might not have the faith, go to God's word, go to a brother or sister in Christ. Let them remind you of the truth. Let them hold you accountable. But turn to God's word and say, whatever it says, because God is sovereign, he is mighty, I'm gonna do it. I'm not going to do what I feel. I'm not going to do what I want. I'm going to do what God calls me to because I'm going to trust that God's way is better than my way and that God is going to lead me well. Why? Because he cares for me. Whatever you're dealing with today, maybe it's a me attitude. Maybe it's a a selfie mindset. 
Maybe today you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to humble yourself. Maybe you've been anxious and worried and full of fear, not knowing how you're going to handle a certain situation, not knowing how you're going to even get through life with all that we're facing. Today, maybe it's that you ask God to give you the power and the ability to um, humble yourself under his mighty power, to trust that he is sovereign. Maybe it's you just need a community around you. Maybe it's that you need to just resist the devil. You've been given into those things that distract you. Whatever it is, whatever God's speaking to you in this moment, talk to him. Repent if you need to repent. Ask him to help you, whatever it is. Maybe the most spiritual thing you pray today is simply this, one word, help. Help. And in that one statement, you're declaring, I am powerless. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the wisdom. I don't know what to do. Help. Whatever it is, let's talk to God. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 1 Peter. We thank you most importantly that you care about us, that you did not make us to just abandon us, but God, you have given us great value and worth. That, that we are made in your image and in your likeness. That we are image bearers of yours. And so God, I pray that we would be confident in that. If there's anyone who's struggling in their identity, if they're struggling in their worth, I pray that today maybe they would just be encouraged by that. But Lord, I don't have to go through the whole message and every point of where we might need help today. Your word has been spoken. The truth has been heard. And simply, I ask that the Spirit would speak now to each heart, to speak to each person here. And whatever decision they need to make, whatever commitment they need to make, whatever correction they need to make, I pray that they would yield themselves to your Spirit and allow your Spirit to work in them. Because the one who started the work is the one who's going to complete it. And so, Father, may we just submit ourselves, may we humble ourselves today under your sovereign rule under your mighty power, under your care and provision. And so speak and work, and may we respond in obedience. We love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.